Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week 35, Meta Musicals. So how are you doing this week, Jonathan? I'm doing good, Alex. We're getting into something new. Uh, after 35 episodes, there is a genre that we have not discussed yet, and that's musicals. Yeah, yeah. So we figured it's it's about time that we dive into the uh, storied past of the mu- musical in uh, cinematic history and look at it at three different time periods and uh, see what it's all about and see what we can learn from it and what makes a musical so uh, well, musical, besides the music. Yeah, and we picked three, like, because there are so many musicals and so many classic musicals, but we picked three that are pretty well known or significant for very various reasons. And through that, we also got this little through line of uh, what is called the, quote, backstage musical, which is a musical about show business, whether that be about movies or about musicals or just some kind of uh, production. Uh, That's what we have in all three of our movies this week. Right. So let's talk about a little bit about the history of the musical. And we have a really great resource for you guys this week uh, from Filmmaker IQ. We're going to post that video for you along with this vlog if you want to take a look at it in depth. But we're going to post uh, we're going to paint the broad strokes of it here of the history of the musical before we dive into our individual musicals, just so you guys can kind of uh, follow along with it for the sake of this conversation. So the musical was a very natural extension on film of the uh, rise of sound technology around the 1920s and the big breakout musical in uh, kind of, you know, the first uh, sound picture that was a big deal, although not the first sound picture, was Al Jolson in uh, The Jazz Singer from 1927. And from there, the musical was kind of born and became a genre in, uh, in cinema. It was obviously already a genre on stage, but this was its first chance on the silver screen. And it would go on to have uh, many different versions of uh, what a musical was. Yeah, and the first big wave after there was, first of all, there was a huge wave of musicals because suddenly it became uh, very profitable to put music and dancing on screen because now we have sound and we can do that. But the amount of content that was put out about movie musicals kind of made the genre burn out really quickly, like within a couple of years. But a couple of years later, there were some people who kind of innovated the genre, uh, specifically Busby Berkeley, who was an amazing director of musicals. Um, and we'll be looking at one film that he choreographed today. Uh, but he made these kind of kaleidoscopic uh, dance numbers, a lot of aerial shots, uh, just some really beautiful arrangements of dancers and uh, songs and stuff like that. And then as far as the actual dancing talent, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers um, kind of were put together in one movie and everyone realized, hey, these guys are really good dancers, exceptionally talented, and uh, they have great chemistry together. And so they became the stars of many movies after that and actually launched the uh, golden era and that comes around the time of our first film also 42nd street which we'll talk about right uh and then of course uh fred and ginger and the busby berkeley movies really dominated most of the 30s 
or all of the 30s and uh, kind of the early part of the 40s. And then MGM kind of started just dominating the scene with their big Technicolor masterpieces uh, of the 40s and 50s. And Louis B. Mayer, who is a very interesting character, and uh, go check out the series on uh, um, You Must Remember This About Him if you want to learn more about this era of MGM musicals. Uh, free plug of the week, folks. Um, really promoted uh, the, the MGM musical as the big moneymaker of the studio. And it was the big blockbuster of, the, of its era. It was really what, um, what drew audiences in and made money for the studio. So a lot of time and effort went into them. And uh, we really see that today in our uh, our second film, Singing in the Rain, which is from this era um, and is a big Technicolor musical masterpiece. So after this golden era of uh, musical history, we get uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein come into the mix and they start bringing the importance of kind of plot driven musicals uh, with films like Oklahoma and The Sound of Music and then like uh after some of those films come out then studios kind of start just taking broadway hits and putting them on film and uh to limited degrees of success because you know the the theater musical market was very different than the film musical market and a lot of those musicals already had such a huge following on the stage and they weren't as well received uh once you put them on film and thrown into this is also what's called book musicals where uh certain books and things are turned into musicals like think mary poppins and that kind of thing um and at this point kind of Fast forwarding to today, there is much less emphasis in uh, movie musicals on actual musical talent. And a lot a lot of times it's very star driven and it's a lot of uh, pre-existing material being made into musicals rather than new material being made for film musicals. And we are kind of taking our the movies that we're watching today through the very beginning to very modern. Uh, and we're going to try and look at all of this in three big nutshells. Right. So our first film today is going to be 42nd Street, as we might have already mentioned, from 1933. This is before the Hayes Code um, was really implemented very strictly. So keep that in mind as we talk about it. And it was nominated for the Best Picture, although it did not win. Yeah, and 42nd Street is kind of considered the first big film musical, um, the first backstage musical kind of a thing. Um, and I think Busby Berkeley's first big musical, and we'll talk about all of that. And then we jump forward to 1952 with the ever more classic Singing in the Rain, uh, which was nominated for Best Score and uh, maybe something else, but it did not get a huge, a lot of, uh, definitely not as much attention as it gets nowadays. Uh, and we'll talk about some of that. It is definitely now considered one of the best musicals of the era and by many, the best musical of all time. Um, but our final film today is La La Land um, from 2016. It won uh, Best Actress, uh, Best Directing, Best Cinematography, uh, Best Original Song, Best Score, Best Production Design, um, and Best Picture, 
um, this year. Oh, wait, wait. I'm sorry, Alex. Actually, uh, Moonlight won Best Picture last year. Oh, dang. Right. Right. Man, we must be like the thousandth people to make that joke. (laughs) But I think it's still funny. Um, (laughs) Anyway. Uh, So La La Land is a very, I think, controversial movie among... um, uh, among uh, all cinephiles yeah. and especially, I mean, all audiences, but especially among cinephiles, I think. Um, and, and we'll get into what might be a heated discussion about that. We shall see. Um, but first, we have other movies to talk about. Yes, we do. So let's take it back to 1933 and talk about 42nd Street. Uh, Alex, go for it. Okay, so 42nd Street is about um, stuff. Actually, I'm kidding. I do know what it's about, but uh, do keep in mind while I explain this plot that it was very common of this era to have music and then kind of just build the plot around the music. Um, But that plot that was built around the music for this movie uh, concerns the making of a Broadway play by a, I don't want to say struggling producer or slash director, but definitely one who has a lot on the line. His, uh, he doesn't have the reputation he wants. He needs the money. And uh, he also has a medical condition. He uh, like has some kind of weird stress that he takes random medication for that's never really explained because we don't need to know the details. But uh, it's been made very clear to him that making this play might kill him, but he just has to do it. Um, and, of course, we have all of our cast members, uh, assortment of comedy uh, relief uh, chorus girls who actually features Ginger Rogers, which I find very fascinating. Um, right, as not one of the major roles. As not one of the major roles. This is before a big breakout with Fred Astaire. Uh, we also have a spoiled starlet who used to be on the vaudeville circuit and has found her way off of it by finding her uh, sugar daddy, who is the uh, per- the... Uh, underwriter of the play and there's some conflict that comes into play with that Uh, but her uh, boyfriend from the vaudeville times is also hanging around which can you can guess how much conflict that causes as they try to make the play Uh, and we also have um, it's more of an ensemble really but if somebody would be our plucky protagonist it would be this plucky showgirl who is played by Ruby Keeler, who was a lead leading, leading lady on uh, Broadway for a long time, actually married to Al Johnson from uh, of jazz singer fame, um, who starts off as a plucky showgirl who eventually uh, has to step up in a big way for the show on opening night. Uh, and it kind of all comes together in a very interesting way. And I think both you and I, Jonathan, had a very similar reaction when we watched this film uh, for the first time, which uh, for the first half kind of went, this is a musical? Question mark. Actually, maybe more than half. Yeah, um, it was. It was a lot of. So where's the music? Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be like I always because definitely before this week, I'm not like a musical aficionado, and I think I, wa- I watched a lot of musicals this week, guys. Besides just the one in the it, the ones in this podcast, but. I, I didn't want, I had a bit of imposter syndrome going on. I didn't want to be like, where's the music? And everybody in the audience is like, ha, you silly noob. The music and musicals don't come until the end. But 
I, I think that was a pretty valid reaction to be like, where's the music? Yeah, so one of the unique things about this film in terms of the way that you traditionally think about musicals is that it doesn't use music embedded into the plot or to kind of further the emotional development. It's literally a movie about making a musical and then the last 45 to 30 minutes of the film are the musical. And then you get all the musical numbers kind of put there at the end, uh, sort of detached from the story, but the story has culminated into it. So you know what's at stake for the performers. And the, the music does uh, relate on some meta level to the actual story in terms of just it being kind of a romantic um, musical and a romantic story. And so some of those themes overlap, but it wasn't like directly pulling things. I thought that there was going to be a moment where, you know, the actress who's singing the words that relates to her actual personal situation kind of stops and realizes that she actually means them. Uh, but there really, there really wasn't that. It was just, we see the musical and, uh, and it was great and it was very flashy, but it's a different experience than what we're used to. Cause the only other points of music are seeing the rehearsal and you're seeing some of the dancing in the rehearsal in montages and you're seeing some of the, uh, songs being rehearsed sung, but it, it, again, it wasn't embedded into the plot at all. Right. I, I stopped at one point because I was so confused to look up a list of musical numbers in this play. And a lot of those rehearsal numbers are listed as musical numbers in this movie. Um, Interesting. Cause they're not full. Cause they're not full and they're definitely, they're flawed and they're, they're exactly what they are. They're rehearsals, they're practice, um, which is important to uh, the, the story that we watch and to keeping the, the story entertaining that they're not perfect right off the bat. But uh, it is, it is a odd experience to watch, uh, you know, 80 years after the fact to, um, to, to try to understand. And I haven't seen a lot of, uh, of musicals from this era, but I, I would definitely think that it is still something that the, the film musical is trying to figure out is how to structure a plot, um, or even just how to structure where you put the mu the music numbers in a movie, because the, the modern day thinking is, um, if you're going to make a musical, you hit them hard and you hit them fast with the music right off the bat and you keep it coming every so often to keep people interested. Um, right. but you know, maybe that wasn't around yet. because uh, yeah, and maybe that was, maybe that's part of the appeal for this. Cause again, this comes after this huge inundation of musicals and people just got burnt out on them. So maybe that's part of the appeal is the fact that, um, you get a story and you get the music thrown in. It doesn't feel like it's using the music as a ploy or um, as kind of just fan service to feed you the the sound. It feels like, OK, it's actually kind of about something. And then we also get the uh, the visual feast at the end, which there definitely is with the yeah. Busby Berkeley choreography. Oh, yeah. It really stinks up on you, too, because at that point I had kind of been like, are we going to see anything? Um and I think that's a very common reaction. That's why I keep mentioning those. But uh, but it sneaks up on you, and then there's just all this eye candy all at once right at the end, um, which is great. It's, it's a really spectacular finale, and it leaves you feeling like, oh, that was a great movie, um, which definitely worked because uh, I don't know if we've mentioned it or put together connected these dots yet in uh, uh, verbatim, but the 42nd Street movie really relaunched 
the the movie musical golden era throughout the 30s 40s and 50s um after this slump that we've been talking about um and it was a bad slump it was like literally movies were advertised as featuring no music um yeah like to get audiences to come see them uh and 42nd street brought that all back and everyone was all like oh yeah musicals let's go see those uh and launched busby berkeley's career um, and all that. So, to, so it was a big deal and it leaves you feeling very, very satisfying, very, very fun. Um, but I also think it's important to mention that about that eye candy at the end is that um, when we talk about film as spectacle, musical is like the the farthest on that scale. Like it, it is as close as you could get to film as spectacle as being the primary goal of film. Um, ever. because yeah, you get you get certain departures from reality that are granted to you in a musical that aren't in other types of drama, and we're gonna see that just kind of be uh, accentuated more and more in each of the films that we watch. But there are certain elements in Forty Second Street where you know the the musical that we're watching at the end could not have been put on as a staged play as it is uh, kind of spoken about in the film because it pretty much only works from looking at it straight above uh, at certain points. And yeah, so that choreography would look really weird on stage. Yeah, so there's some interesting uh, kind of disconnect there where they're, they're putting on this musical, they're kind of putting it under the pretense of it being a staged musical in the movie, but really it's a musical for the film audience uh, primarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it definitely, um, in that sense, it definitely kind of tosses um, realism out the window. I mean, they were constrained by what they could technically do. Like, they didn't have CGI at their disposal. Um, So what we're getting feels like it has a dose of realism to modern audiences. Um, Because it doesn't, it's not like, you know, one of the other musicals we've watched on this on this uh, podcast before. It's not like Bahubali, which has like CGI uh, tossed in on the spectacle. So it all feels very fantastical, Um, but it is fantastical for the era in 42nd street. And I mean, even nowadays it's hard to look at it and be like, wow, this is, this is pure spectacle eye candy. And I love it. Um, Yeah. And there was definitely, there was a good point in that uh, filmmaker IQ video that you mentioned earlier um, that, I hadn't thought of because I was thinking about this weird disconnect. Um, but another p- part of it from the time period is that making the musical specific to film in a way that the only way you can actually experience this musical that we're seeing uh, in the proper way is for it to be filmed with the camera following or the camera looking straight down or whatever. And that adds an element to this film that you couldn't go see this movie on Broadway. So that makes it an an exclusive experience to film-going audiences, uh, which is um, kind of a special thing and is also another draw for this film. And I think this is one of the first films that kind of had that appeal because of um, one of Bugsby Berkeley's um, innovations, which was to disconnect the camera from the recording of the audio 
which had huge advantages. Do you want to talk about that, Alex? Yeah, yeah. So we're still in the very early days of sound technology, um, and, and cameras haven't fully caught up yet. And and by that, I mean they're still really freaking loud. Um, so a lot of times, if you wanted to shoot sync sound and picture at the same time, you had to put um, the, uh, the camera in a soundproof box, which could be a problem, obviously, if you want to try to do the kind of camera moves that Busby Berkeley pulls off with his uh, choreography. But if you pre-record the musical number and play it back as uh, the actors do their thing so they can perform properly and then just sync up the pre-recorded audio and the, um, the, the re-recorded, or not re-recorded, the properly recorded uh, camera movements with the super loud camera going but no sound rolling on the super loud camera, then you have exactly what you want. You have the pre-recorded sound and the well-done uh, cinematography meshed into a brilliant piece on screen. Um, which is something you can only do in in film. But by uh, doing the pre-recorded sound, um, Busby Berkeley was able to pull off his famous top-down shots, which he just does out the wazoo in yeah. 42nd Street. Um, like, sincerely amazing. And, you know, I, I feel like... Um, we should we should post uh we found a, a really you found a really cool video of um uh busby berkeley uh shots kind of a nice compilation to really give you a full sense of what they look like and we can post that along uh with the blog post this week to to give you a quick taste of uh of what they're like and i'm sure after you see them you'd be anxious to see some of these uh musicals because they really are spectacular yeah, and it, I mean, it's still some unparalleled just uh, shot composition and stuff that you don't even see in a lot of movies today, except for like extremely artsy, like people trying very hard to get the same kind of a feel because just the amount of production design that goes into making these, because it's it's taking a whole uh, sound studio and um, you know, some of the shots in the compilation that we'll post and from the movies that he made, which you should definitely look into, just require so much, so many props and so many people and so much very precise um, choreography and movement that it's it's incredible uh, how much planning goes into them and they definitely pay off. Uh, and they're still being homaged today and there's I think we see homages to Busby Berkeley in probably both of the films that we watch today. And there's even an homage to the scene where the camera uh, goes underneath the legs of um, a bunch of chorus girls and then reveals the the faces of the two main actors in the musical. And I think there's a reference to that in The, the Big Lebowski, of all things. So there's just all of these really innovative um, images and choreographies are still having their impact even today, uh, close to a hundred years later. You know, what's kind of interesting. Um, we were talking last week on the Frank Capra episode about how he used uh, pre-recorded sound as uh, innovation to make his films better. And now we're talking about it again this week. Um, so it's only fitting we also talk about the Hayes Code a little because who doesn't like talking about the Hayes Code? Um, right. And like we said, like we talked about last week, the Hayes Code was around before 1934, but it wasn't really enforced 
until 1934. Um, so, so there were rules, they were all broken. Um, and they were broken uh, in 42nd Street, uh, but in the style that you'd expect a 1933 movie to, uh, to break them. There's, there's still a different kind of uh, default propriety level than we have today. Um, but it, it, for the time period, there are some things in this film that uh, probably wouldn't fly a couple years later. Uh, for example, there is a lot of drinking and drunkenness. Um, there's a whole very pivotal scene where um, a bunch of the actresses in the musical are very drunk and um, just all these kind of shenanigans happening in this hotel room. Um, and then also there's a very creepy producer guy that you mentioned in the in the overview who um, is kind of interested in the musical because of the girls and the, the dancers in it. And one of the actresses in the musical is only in it because she has a relationship with him. And that's not very subtle in the movie either. Uh, and it's, it's this kind of interesting breach of propriety that is probably one of the things that uh, kind of made the Hays Code come into effect and probably some of the shots of the dancing and stuff. There's a lot of legs in this movie. Um, and so it's just it's interesting seeing some of the things that are happening before the Hays Code and then some of the things that uh, are similar but start to become implied a couple years later. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't like the uh, the raunchiest of movies, but it is a right. good example of, um, of that kind of flip-flop because um, the Hays Code was a big deal in the movies. And uh, like we talked about last week, it restricted them in a lot of ways, but that also led to a lot of creativities in another way. Um, and it might be worth exploring in its own uh, mini set of episodes at one point in time. But for now, uh, just kind of it's, it's just kind of the fun thing to keep in mind while you watch these films. Um, not just uh, the films that were made or how they were made, but the circumstances in which they were made. Because those often reveal more about the film um, than, uh, than you would expect. And one other thing I want to mention before we uh, leave 42nd Street to go singing in the rain um, is uh, this idea that, or, or this tension between the spectacle required to make a musical enjoyable and um, the reality or the realism that, that can be in a film or, or the realism that is expected of a film of any given era. Um, and obviously in 42nd Street, you don't expect a lot of realism. Uh, movies are fantasy, movies are spectacle, and Busby Mo Berkeley movies especially are all about spectacle. Um, and, and whether or not it's very realistic is kind of, you know, ne neither here nor there. Um, but it is something that, to, just to keep in the back of your mind as this episode progresses, um, because we are going to see a slight uh, transition as we go forward. And I, I feel like that's a big question for me today in regards to these musicals and just the genre as a whole as to whether or not a musical can be both realistic and satisfactory, um, spectacular at the same time. Um, we'll have to see. So, Jonathan, do you want to set us up for Singing in the Rain, 1952? Yes, I do. Um, although this is one of the films that we talk about on the podcast that probably does not need uh, an introduction. Um, Singing in the Rain is so just ubiquitously loved um, 
as a film and as a musical and just as classic cinema history. But essentially, it follows the story of Hollywood transitioning to sound on one level um, and two characters, Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont, who are gigantic silent film stars and what happens when they have to start incorporating dialogue and speaking into their films, especially because Lena has the worst voice any person could have uh, and it would definitely not attract audiences. Um, and also is we have Don Lockwood's best friend and musical composer uh, Cosmo. And then the choir girl that Don runs into named uh, Kathy Selden and how she is much more talented, but hasn't gotten the big break that Lena has. And eventually they concoct this plan for Kathy to voice Lena in all of her movies because she has a much better voice and the tension that that creates and the egos that go flying and the love that blossoms between Don and Lena. And then of course, all the music, uh, whether it's, you know, needed to the story or not, but it just all goes into this big, wonderful, uh, mish mishmash of, um, music and story that is singing in the rain. And very bright colors, which I yes, quite and colors. <laughs> and and there's a very big, uh, big difference between Forty uh, Second Street and Singing in the Rain, and very typical of the MGM uh, musicals of this era. You, you know, like the the forties and the fifties, uh, when MGM was musical king. Um, and, yeah, following they, on Wizard of Oz and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were they just dominated with musicals exactly like this with musicals that were uh, fun and bright and had excellent music and lots and lots of star power and lots and lots of project production quality too because there are one or two segments in singing in the rain that wow all i sometimes when i when i look at them all i see is just dollar signs like that must have been <laughs> so expensive um and so hard to shoot but dang does it look good um and also, you know, keep in mind, another thing that was pretty typical of this era was, or at least any original um, uh, movie musicals of the time, was that uh, the music was written and then the plot was written. Which, considering that, the plot is really good in this film. Yeah. And real quick, before we get too far from 42nd Street, I think one of the interesting things about Singing in the Rain that you mentioned is how colorful it is. And how colorful, especially the montage of transitioning from silent to talkies where the movie is telling us that the whole film industry is transitioning into uh, this new talking era where musicals are going to become this gigantic thing. Everything that we just saw that literally happened um, right before 42nd Street in Hollywood. Um, and this was like barely two decades later. So this is actually not that far distant from the time period it's portraying. Um, but that, that sequence is so colorful and all the musicals, the first musical number that we see them, uh, filming on the lot is uh, beautiful girls. And he's describing all of these, um, costumes that are so colorful and everything. And, and all I could think was that you know, if they're filming this in this time period, it's going to be black and white. So they're not actually going to get the colors across. That's just for us, the film audience, um, watching Singing in the Rain in the same way that 
filming the musical on the stage in 42nd Street is just for the film audience. So there's this interesting kind of, uh, uh, again, this break from reality that you can get away with in musicals, but you don't really think about it until you start breaking down the logistics of what's actually happening. Oh, gosh. You know what that reminds me of? Um, and I nearly forgot, but there's one line very early in 42nd Street when uh, somebody's looking for somebody on stage and it's pure chaos. And uh, what the, the person who, who points out um, who our, uh, our plucky showgirl is looking for says, oh, yeah, it's the guy over there in the green hat. And I'm like, what? This is a black and white film. What are you what are you doing? And maybe it's just because color film wasn't a thing yet. So people weren't like, oh, well, it's black and white. People will be like, what's the point of saying that? But, you know, seriously, like color is completely irrelevant when you are uh, in a black and white film. So, yeah. And that wasn't I mean, it's not like a a big plot point revolving around the audience knowing that he's in a green hat. But, yeah, that's interesting. No, not at all. It was it was a very minor line. It it was just a little annoyance of mine. But. You know, there there it is. Um, yeah. But yeah, I also want to take a moment to just mention the uh, the how interesting this period of history is and how uh, weirdly connected to reality this musical is in in the yeah. sense that like a lot of stars did struggle to um, to make that transition uh, between uh, sound and uh, and and or sorry between silent uh, pictures and sound pictures. And like the dilemma that our uh, our starlet at the beginning faces, where she has a terrible voice, um, I don't want to say terrible like in a mean way, but like definitely not suited for uh, creating pleasing scenes on screen. That are yeah, the character intentionally had a terrible voice. I think we can oh. say that. Oh Even yeah, though yeah, the yeah. actress did not. She had a normal voice. She and had she a put fantastic on a- <laughs> voice. She actually um, she actually sings a lot of her own parts that are supposedly dubbed by um by uh debbie Kathy. reynolds uh, over the course of the film and in fact one of the one of the scenes where it's in and i apologize that this sounds so confusing because it is but one of the scenes where she is uh dubbing her voice for a music number is actually dubbed by a third actress so i was trying to read i was like trying to read the imdb note on it and i'm it was just impossible to follow. It was like <laughs> X actress is filming Z actresses scene while Y actress is dubbing this actress, dubbing that actress. And I'm like, what? Wow. Um, but again, these are complicated, um, definitely big productions that went into it. Yeah. And one of the other parallels to reality is uh, Debbie Reynolds. She makes this movie when she's 19. This is her first big role she is dancing with Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor, some of the greatest dancers uh, of their time or any time. And uh, that's kind of what her character is. She's thrown into this world of, um, you know, celebrity giants and has to cope with that and uh, and kind of put on her big girl pants and and dance with the <laughs> with the masters. And she does it and she. We have an interview that we'll throw in the notes where she talks about how hard it was and it was hard, but you know, she worked on it and she worked hard. And I think that her part holds up with, uh, with these other characters and actors who are so, um, just well-trained and, uh, 
and so great at what they do. And she jumped in and uh, and fits into this uh, this story perfectly. Yeah, yeah. It's all the more impressive because uh, Gene Kelly was notorious for being um, very demanding on set um, and sometimes very harsh to his co-stars. Um, and, and for a 19-year-old kid to jump in there and uh, make arguably one of the best films of all time and um, I would say one of the best musicals of all time, if not the best musical of all time, is pretty damn impressive. Um, and the whole the whole shoot was very... You know, it's very high profile. It's very stressful because this is the middle of the MGM golden era. Um, but the stars really pulled through. Um, in fact, the entire Singing in the Rain number, the big famous one where Gene Kelly is splashing around on a street, um, which is a back lot, by the way, if you didn't know. Um, he has like a hundred degree fever for that entire thing. And they had only half choreographed the entire number. And he was like, oh, let's roll on it and see what happens. And they got it in one take. And that's what you see in the final film. Sorry, wait, I'm getting ignored. That was a mistake. That was a myth. Um, they did not shoot it in one take. They shot it over the course of a, a few days. But he did have a fever, which is very impressive uh, to shoot that on. And uh, wow, we really have to clean up this whole note delivery system. First Moonlight, and now, <laughs> and now this. Jonathan, what is the Filmings podcast coming to? Yeah, the, the envelopes and little note cards, you know, it's really about the typography, but we should probably find a better system. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I love about this movie is because I am uh, a cinephile, which means a movie lover, if you didn't know. I feel like that's fairly obvious, but whatever. Um, I am a cinephile. Jonathan, you are a cinephile. Yes. 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 And you know what cinephiles love? Movies. You want? They really like movies about movies. They love movies about movies. <laughs> Everyone's so confused why or, or so upset that Hollywood loves Hollywood so much. And I'm like, that's because they're all kids who grew up to love Hollywood and want to be in Hollywood. And wow, they finally made it. And of course, they love Hollywood. Like what? They 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 were all born dreamers, or you know, a lot of them were. I'm sure there's plenty of scumbags and opportunists mixed in among them. Actually, I'm sure there are, but uh, so many of them are dreamers, and of course they love themselves um, and love the the thing that they they finally got to be a part of. Um, but another part of that is that Hollywood has done a darn good job of mythologizing itself, of um, making its own history um, basically mythical. Um, it's and, and it is very real, but I mean mythical in in the way that it looks in singing in the rain romanticized in, in the, yeah romanticized in the in the opening sequence where all the stars come in who are all by the way parodies of real life stars um come <laughs> and down. then became stars themselves later yeah. on yeah yeah it's 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 glorious it's absolutely glorious um in in a very funny ironic way but uh, it is something that Hollywood loves to do, and musicals seem very apt at doing it. Yeah, and that kind of goes into the idea of, uh, as you already mentioned, a lot of the music for this film was already like pre-existing before the film was made. So many of these songs come from other movies and uh, that have already been made, or uh, songs that have been written for movies that maybe hadn't been made, and uh, they kind of went through and 
pulled them all together and created this story and it really kind of works. But that's why certain uh, pieces may feel a little bit disjointed. For example, the famous uh, Broadway medley, which is definitely the most memorable piece of this whole movie uh, where Gene Kelly is pitching this scene to his studio exec. And basically we go into his imagination of this scene, which is this the most elaborate number in the whole movie about this guy coming to Hollywood, trying to or coming to Broadway, rather trying to make it big. Uh, he goes to every agent and says he's got to dance. Um, and we just go through this whole elaborate, romantic, uh, gorgeous scene that really has no impact on the plot at all. But it has a huge impact on your perception of the movie as a whole because it is so brilliantly executed. Yeah, it ends up being um, a, a work of tone setting and um, a emotion. I don't want to say emotion control, but a, an emotional arc more than a uh, than any kind of like real plot for the arc audience. The music yeah, pieces for the audience because. The, the musical numbers serve to man they just make you happy that's all I want like they just what a do. glorious feeling yeah really yeah sing it Jonathan <laughs> I'm not gonna sing we've uh, spared them this far yeah we'll I think we, we made the mutual decision beforehand to not sing in this podcast um, and that is for your benefit dear listener um, but yeah yeah they just make you happy and uh, I think you know when when i say that the um that the point of the musical is almost always uh, is almost entirely spectacle that's kind of what i mean is that you just enjoy watching these these musical numbers so much that whether or not the plot around them makes any sense is kind of eh. like um moses supposes right very enjoyable very enjoyable number didn't really serve the plot at all but man, is it enjoyable. And that's actually the only song that was actually written for the film, the only new song in the whole movie. Um, but that does go into, because we talked about in the last film that, uh, you know, the music was kind of separated because it was put into the guise of this show within the movie. Whereas in this film, we're seeing what we're more used to, which is songs that pop up in the middle of, um, you know, what we presume to be reality, even though, you know, as it's been riffed on so many times, that doesn't happen in real life. But this is what musicals have conditioned us to do is to just believe uh, that somehow the music is just this uh, emotional outlet for the characters and it's a... Uh, and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful. And especially in in films like this, where the performers are just so good at their craft that the dancing is just outstanding and everything goes together and you believe it. Um, you believe the emotion of it, even if you don't believe that that might actually happen in real life. Uh, but, you know, if you're into the story enough, then it doesn't make a difference. And we talked about that, and I think we'll bring up Bollywood again later, but we talked about that with Indian cinema, is that it's so fantastical that it it sets itself up to be able to go in whatever direction and you will believe it because it believes in itself so much, and that's really the point. 
Yeah, yeah, it says this is okay. So the audience just kind of goes with it. As long as right, because it does it, it confidently. Yeah, yeah, as long as as long as it follows its own rules, then it's fine. It's when it's when a film starts breaking its own rules that you get confused. But but you know, it doesn't matter how crazy those rules are, as long as you stick to them. And musicals, especially Bollywood musicals, do that very well. <laughs> But one other thing we should talk about is the way the film was received when it was released versus the way that it's perceived uh, in modern day looking back on it, which is interesting because it was not the most well-received musical. It was kind of, uh, I mean, it was well-received. People liked it, but it was not the um, Hollywood mammoth that it is today in the popular imagination. And that's really interesting because I think that it was kind of upstaged by musicals like An American in Paris and some other contemporary films that don't hold, don't capture the public imagination in the same way that they do today. I mean, these are still regarded as great films, but nothing compares to the legacy that Singing in the Rain has had uh, just in film and everyday life. Right, right. I mean, it, it's pretty common knowledge on the street. You know, like, if you bring up Singing in the Rain, somebody knows what you're talking about. If you bring up An American in Paris, somebody would be like, uh, why I've are heard they that Paris? title. <laughs> right. Uh, which is funny because Gene Kelly's in both, and uh, An American in Paris won the Oscar, uh, while Singing in the Rain did not. Um, yeah, and that that's kind of what I'm talking about, is that, you know, there's... Even if a film is not... Totally. This is why, uh, you know, the Oscars are such a, you know, kind of contested uh, point of validity as far as, you know, giving validity to the films that get awarded. Because can you really say how impactful a film is the year after it comes out? Or does it take 5, 10, 20, 50 years to really understand what films are going to last with people and what films are going to be fun in that year for a, for a time, but then just kind of be forgotten uh, except for a few select cinephiles who know about the old movies. Yeah. Cause critics are regularly, regularly wrong because it's all subjective and you don't know what's going to be in vogue this year, in vogue next year. And the really impressive stuff is the stuff that stays in vogue all the years, um, like Singing in the Rain has. Uh, and that's why the legacy of this film is so impressive, um, because it's stuck around. And it's stuck around for a while, too. It's been like 60 years, man, um, yeah. since this movie's come out. It's not a young film at all, and it's still utterly brilliant. Um, I do want to point out one thing that I found very interesting about um, these golden era musicals from the middle of the century is that uh, they're kind of star vehicles, um, but not in the sense that they only exist uh, for the sake of the star in the in the film, but they are showcases of talent um, more so than uh, than purely narrative films, I think. Uh, because they are they are there for to to show off a triple threat. They are there to work that triple threat um, to its maximum advantage and milk it uh, for its maximum inter entertainment value. And so you're there um, 
you're there not to see Gene Kelly serve the plot, but you're there to see Gene Kelly dance uh, like he's really got to. He's like he's just got to dance um, and sing like he's just got to sing and act like he's just got to act. And you're really there for the performance in these films. Yeah, and this film and many of the films of this era really deliver because there are so many performers who were intensely trained in singing and dancing and acting uh, in a way that you don't quite get the same uh, today. But before we move on with that, I think it'd be fun to just bring up uh, another film that is almost a perfect counterpart to Singing in the Rain, which came out fairly recently, uh, and that is The Artist. Um, And that is a film that follows also the transition from silent film to uh, talking film, but it's from the perspective of the silent film. So it is portrayed in a silent film in black and white, and you're seeing the silent film actor trying to cope with this transition, but (laughs) silently as opposed to in Singing in the Rain where we're watching that transition from the perspective of color and talking pictures and using all of that to its maximum effect. So I think that's a really interesting uh, kind of switch. And yeah, there's even is. music in the artist, uh, kind of the, the whole musical genre comes up in that. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it literally is silent and black and white. Like, it is the opposite. Right. And it's, yeah, very similar subject matter again. So it's kind of fun. I would love to do a double feature with that. I haven't, but they they always stick together in my mind for whatever reason. All right. But getting back into proper musicals, uh, let's talk about the big one that came out very recently that has been getting so much buzz, not only because of its uh, Oscar controversy, which we've been making fun of, but also just general controversy that we'll talk about and that's la la land alex set us up this is the story of two dreamers mia and sebastian mia played by emma stone wants to be an actress and sebastian played by uh, ryan gosling is a jazz pianist and uh wants to own his own jazz club someday um and the two eventually meet through a series of happenstances and fall in love and spur each other to achieve their dreams. But will their romance survive? Um, and wow, that plot was kind of easy to sum up, but it is yeah, a musical it and it is, it is very much set in um, modern day LA. It is maybe one of the best examples of modern day LA and like the dreamer scene as I call it in modern day LA that uh, I've witnessed like uh, those in LA who are aspiring to be in the, the industry as they call it. Um, and, and dream big, like these two dream big. Um, and it is, yes, it is a musical. Although there are people who seem to, uh, debate whether or not it's a good musical. Um, and I say it's at very least a good movie. And if you say otherwise, you can meet me on the corner. I will fight you. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's what this movie is about. Um, and if, if nothing else, it's a darn good uh, movie about uh, two people who are trying to achieve their dreams in a very modern setting. Um, but whether or not it's a good musical, well, 
there's a debate. Yeah, so just to kind of lay out the two different sides, if you will, of the discussion about the film, it's it kind of falls in the camp of, as we've been talking about, um, classically musicals um, are showcasing triple threats like you just uh, kind of explained for us with the last film, which are performers who are excellent actors, dancers, and singers. Um, whereas, as as I've said, we don't have a whole lot of those, at least not with the same star power that uh, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers did. Um, so this film has cast two phenomenal actors and basically taught them to sing and dance throughout the film. And uh, whether that plays off as well as it does in the golden era of musicals is kind of where the the controversy comes in. And also the fact that the film itself references so many classic movies and so many um, classic musicals that uh, showcase such talent and then uses performers who are one or two of the triple threat uh, is kind of disappointing to some people, and that's where this debate comes in. Yeah, yeah. So the the reason people like it, um, why do people like this movie? Well, it is it is bright, it is full of music, and it is um, very very colorful. It it matches the technical color. It matches the nat the the technicolor pop of the MGM musicals of the 1950s um but shot in such a way that if you play it on a digital screen um you're not going to lose some of that sharpness that you lose when you watch a film movie from the 1950s on a digital screen um and yes like you say there is a lot of nostalgia driven here uh not so i and i didn't have that experience personally because i didn't see a lot of musicals before um before this week but uh but i i do understand that that is there for a lot of people who really love musicals and have seen a lot of uh a lot of them before watching this movie because damien chancel makes an honest effort to uh to reference as many as possible throughout the course of this film uh and there's even a subtly line or unsubtly yeah un- totally unsubtly it's very it's very over the top there's even a line in the film um when me and sebastian are talking about the play that me has written um, where she worries about it being too nostalgic. And he says, that's the point. And if they don't like it, um, bleep them, uh, or something along those lines. And it's, they're kind of talking more about La La Land at that point than they're talking about uh, um, uh, their, her, the play. Her play, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're definitely like, we're just, we're having fun with this. We're going we're gonna to do it. Um, the big reason why I like it is because it's a it's a dialogue, it's a uh, story, it's a really great uh, plot about the power of dreams and trying to achieve those dreams and how a romance can fit into those dreams rather than how a dream can fit into the the romance, which is how so many films like to take things. Is that the romance solves everything, um, but sometimes dreams get left in the dust. Uh, and this kind of takes a different view, and I won't I won't say exactly how it does it. Go watch the film, but it does take a different view, and uh, and I, I very much enjoyed it, and I, I really liked uh, the message at its core. 
Um, and of course, like we just mentioned before with Singing in the Rain, Hollywood likes Hollywood. This is a film for a cinephile. Those who get the references that are made in it, those who want to be in the industry and um, understand the dream that is at hand in the in the film, um, or those who are already in the industry and understand it, um, or those who have ever wanted anything so bad that you would uh, move across the country and uh, spend all your time trying to accomplish it. Yeah, and then on the other side of the argument, there's, like I've already said, um, some of the performers don't have the same amount of dancing and singing talent that the uh, the classical um, you know stars did. Uh, you know, you can't really top Gene Kelly, but still, there's there's a level of professionalism and technique in the dancing and singing that uh, doesn't translate from people who really love those classic musicals into the modern musicals because a lot of the uh, the dancers and singers who have the talent don't have the acting talent and also don't have the star pull that um, studios are willing to bank a lot of money on to make their money back on how much it takes to make a musical these days. Um, and then also, like you brought up the homages and stuff, but some of it is very in your face, which can turn some people off. Maybe they want more subtle references and stuff. And I think there's a good mix in this one of, you know, they literally go see uh, rebel without a cause and they talk about Casablanca. And uh, these are pretty like easy movies to pull and reference. And then there's also more subtle ones where uh, Ryan Gosling does a quick spin around a, uh, a lamppost and you get, okay, we got seeing in the rain in there. Um, and then also the ending, which you kind of alluded to, uh, you know, depending on, what you think about the themes uh, in the film, it may be a good ending or a bad ending, uh, so that can turn people one way or another. And there's probably also a lot of the controversy just coming from people who like to push back against a movie that gets a lot of attention. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if a movie gets liked a lot. Oh, yeah, those people always come out. And I'm, I am occasionally one of those people. I, I, I'll, I'll, admit, I'll cop to it. I am occasionally one of those people who's like, oh, it's just... It's just all the rage right now. It's not that great. It's just bad. Um, and then I go see it and form an opinion for myself. But uh, but I am guilty of it. So yeah. And then there's there's the uh, the other question of I guess the production um, status as far as the classic musicals being primarily filmed and performed on sound stages where everything is in the director's control. Um, all the lighting, all the uh, set pieces, the mise-en-scene, which we've talked about before, uh, can all be specifically set up for each musical number, whereas La La Land has much, uh, a much more indie feel. Uh, for example, in the, in the Filmmaker IQ article, he talks about the opening number of La La Land, which is uh, everyone on the uh, Los Angeles highway stuck in traffic gets out and starts dancing on top of the cars. Everyone has very brightly colored cars and colored clothes. and uh, But it's in broad daylight. They actually film this in broad daylight, so the shadows are very harsh, and, uh, and it doesn't look as pristine as some of the classic musicals. Uh, and so maybe that's a, that's a bit of a hard transition uh, 
for some people who are going into this expecting one thing and then getting something a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. And a big part of that, um, that I think we've been not so subtly dropping hints at over the course of this podcast is that the conditions that have to exist for a musical, the quality of a 1950s musical, have to be similar conditions, or at least better than they currently are. I feel like I'm talking about it like it's a storm. Like, <laughs> the, the certain uh, conditions so, that have to form for a perfect musical storm to happen. <laughs> uh, watch out, we have the outflow boundary on uh, this musical number <laughs> over here, and... Uh, I hope you're getting used to singing in this rain because it will be <laughs> raining for a while. Except it won't because we don't have the same conditions. And when we talk about La La Land looking like it has an indie budget, well, I mean, it doesn't have a completely indie budget, but it doesn't have anything like the support that was behind the MGM musicals. Um, they were shooting like out on location um, with kind of like what almost felt like I don't want to say quick and dirty, but a lot of that stuff had to be done um, in under very tight circumstances. Whereas a lot of the MGM musicals had to be shot on um, back lots where they had complete control over everything. Um, and so you can have the big dance numbers like you have in Singing in the Rain, where you have complete control over everything. And you have the time um, and you have a studio that is okay with letting you take the time to do that. Um, and that studio system that produced that same um, same conditions for production and also the same studio system that consciously and actively took an effort to find talent that could be a triple threat and um, right. and and like cultivate that talent because that is something the studio system did like that was what they were best at probably is creating stars. Um, is finding people who had the talent uh, because there was plenty of them around trying to be the one who had the talent um, and turn developing that talent and turning them into stars uh, you know like Debbie Reynolds uh, and and you don't have that same action happening in Hollywood right now you don't have the same uh, people who are um, who are who are trying to develop and cultivate this this pin of talent you have a bunch of individuals trying to make stuff and that's great and that is great when you're trying to make this realistic stuff that's in the legacy of uh the new wave of cinema that happened all across the globe in the 60s uh and 70s and hit america big at that point in time but we we just don't have that right now so um so i'm not surprised that La La Land doesn't measure up to the standards of people who expect it to look like a 1950s musical. And, I mean, it's not the only musical to come out in the past two decades. There's been others. But um, it's been, like, the first big singing and dancing musical since, like, Chicago, almost. I'm sure there's some other one out there that I don't know about. But, um, but it's been a while. Yeah. And to its credit, it is original. This is not... Uh, material that's taken from stage or from previously existing movies uh, as we've seen a lot of lately as far as you know Into the Woods and all the Disney uh, 
films that are getting remade in live action. So that it definitely has that going for it. And that is a risk that Damien Chazelle took. Uh, and it's definitely a story that he was passionate about and you have to give him credit for it. So I don't know that there's discussion that it's a bad movie. I just, yeah, there's definitely that, that question of it's referencing such classic work and then it, it kind of sets a bar for itself and people uh, kind of fall in two different camps, whether it rises to that bar or not. Well, filmmaker IQ guy definitely thinks it's a bad movie. <laughs> right. He has some very um, strong feelings about it. Um, but you did bring up this question this week about um, how films are regarded in their contemporary, um, their, their, their modern setting when they were released versus what will their legacy be and uh i have a take on this we got lots of hot takes this week on <laughs> on the Finland's podcast um i have a hot take on this and that is that if uh if la la land launches a new interest in musicals that can foster talent who sets out with the goal of creating movie musicals in their career then it could one day be seen as the movie that launched um or helped launch a a new golden age of musicals and that is possible that doesn't mean it will happen it means it's possible i definitely agree with that and i think that um that kind of puts it more in a category of 42nd street that you know, launched this the second go- or the first golden age of uh, the Hollywood musical, and as we talked about, all of the kind of spectacular Busby Berkeley stuff is relegated to the end. So there are more spectacular uh, choreographies and Busby Berkeley films that come afterwards. But this film is significant because it was at the beginning, and I think La La Land could be that because it has a very compelling story. And whether all the technical aspects live up to certain people's expectations, if it does kick off this this uh, kind of search for talent who could be put in similar kinds of films, but fulfill more of the uh, the triple threat kind of role, then I think that La La Land will become a very, very significant film in film history. But, you know. Only time yeah. will tell, and we'll have to uh, we'll have to see what happens going forwards. Yeah, and honestly, like you know, let's pretend they gave um, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone another year to work on their tap dancing, and uh, um, actually, you know, taken a little more extra time to uh, nail that lighting on the uh, the highway scene, and you would have been looking at a much better movie. Um, and I already think it's a really good movie. And there are scenes like we talked about the production value, but there are scenes that are very soundstage centric. For example, there's probably the most climactic uh, point, which is kind of an imagination thing, kind of like we talked about with Singing in the Rain. And it definitely harkens back to the Broadway medley. uh, And that's all soundstage. uh, But it feels... uh, in some ways smaller than the singing in the rain Broadway medley. Uh, but that's, again, it goes into what resources are available for these kind of films. What are studios willing to 
uh, provide to get a film like this made because I don't think they believe in it anymore. Public tastes have changed and uh, the studio's priorities have changed. So we don't have, again, like you said, that seeking for that talent or that uh, providing for these kinds of films because, uh, you know, they haven't been proven to be the next singing in the rain yet. So they're not going to back it yet. But we'll see what happens in the future. And hopefully there can be a revitalization of the genre. Yeah, yeah. And La La Land definitely performed well. So. Right. It did, <laughs> it did not do badly. There's just. So all of this. All of this controversy is really just kind of uh, dust in the wind until we see the long-lasting impact in a decade or so. It's a bunch of cinephiles with their own hot takes trying to convince other cinephiles that their hot take (laughs) is better than the other hot take. But yeah, 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 yeah. anyway. All right, so let's take all of our hot takes and throw them into a big stew of overall notes and talk about musicals in general. And again, we are looking at three little blips on the musical history which spans almost as long as uh talking film history as we've been talking about so we'll definitely come back to musicals later but just from what we've seen this week um what have we observed you you know jonathan if this was a musical we would break out into a song right now called hot take stew Um, (laughs) and it would be glorious if we could sing it would be glorious so I think one of the biggest things we've learned this week is that musicals um, rely heavily on spectacle, and it doesn't matter um, over much whether or not it matters to whether it's a successful movie. It doesn't matter too much to whether it's a, su- a successful musical, how realistic and um, well thought out and well made the plot is. But the spectacle has to be there if you want to consider it a fantastic musical. And I think that's something that we've noticed uh, in the comparison of all three of our movies this week. Yeah, and uh, and that kind of goes into this idea of escapism. Like, there's uh, an expectation that you go into with a musical that's different from going into a drama or a historical epic or something like that. You're going into this film hoping to be elevated and uh, kind of taken out of everyday life um, to some extent or another. Yeah, yeah, because nobody goes into a musical and is like, you know what the best part was? The part where they weren't singing. Um, (laughs) Right. And I I think that's one of the most impressive things about uh, the genre as a whole Um, because it gets a lot of credit, obviously, for being fun and being spectacular, but uh, one of the coolest things about it is that it takes advantage of the full range of what a movie can be. It's grand camera movements and grand staging and grand costume design, and it takes full uh, advantage of sight and sound with you know singing and dancing all at once. And once you have the introduction of color, you have bright colors everywhere. Um, and once you have the introduction of CGI, oh, trust me, there's plenty of CGI. <laughs> Just go watch across the universe. But, um, but I, I think that's one of the most lovable things about a musical, um, from a cinephile point of view is that it is such a good example of everything a movie can be, but like all at once. 
Yeah, you know, it's literally what could happen if we turn this movie up to eleven? Oh, a musical, a musical could happen. Yeah, and that's I mean we're we're seeing that that has been ingrained in the musical uh, just DNA from the very beginning with Busby Berkeley breaking the camera free of the sound box and being able to use it in conjunction with the choreography. And like you said, it's pushing everything to 11. It's making these emotional moments just uh, kind of pop out at you by adding singing and like things that aren't real, but are kind of what you're feeling when you're in those moments in real life. And that's what we saw in Indian cinema, like we mentioned a little bit before, is that they they're not ashamed to throw musicals into every genre of film that they make, uh, whether it's drama or uh, fantasy or whatever. They'll add musical numbers to them. And that's just kind of become a point of Indian cinema. And I think we even mentioned in that episode in the world tour that Hollywood might actually have something to learn from Indian cinema about incorporating music into drama and storytelling and so we're seeing that this um art form is really important and can be uh very popular across cultures and there's just something like with the shifting of uh interpretations and tastes and stuff like that that um kind of makes american musicals go through these waves of popularity and uh make these debates happen of uh the the quality of certain musicals that are released. Yeah. It's like tight pants. They come and go in waves. (laughs) Um, But there's something nice and global about the, about what makes a musical a musical. Um, I don't have to, I don't have to read subtitles when I'm watching a musical segment of a, um, of a Bollywood movie. And that's not because like I suddenly understand Hindi. I don't, I wish that happened, but you know, I don't. Um, it's, it's more of that the enjoyment of the scene isn't based off of what they're saying. It's based off of, um, how they sing and how they move and you can enjoy a foreign song and dance regardless of what language you speak. Um, and it just translates so well across cultures. Yeah. And there's another element to, uh, the modern age of Hollywood is that, in the last several decades, Hollywood has put a real premium on making films feel very realistic and uh, even to the point where hyper-realism is a word used to describe uh, the feeling of um, performances and just atmospheres in films. And I think that's another thing that goes into the La La Land discussion is that, like you've been saying, that musicals are supposed to be fantastical and very uh, big and bright and um, and surreal in in some ways. And the state of current Hollywood films is kind of contrary to that because it's too close and personal in some ways. So I don't know if we just haven't found the right mixture of uh, contemporary cinematography and filmmaking and the fantastic uh, musical uh, feel or what, but that might be another element that goes into that conversation. I'm sure it's doable because like I said before, um, and this isn't to knock on, uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. They're both wonderful performers, but, um, they, they weren't the right 
I mean, they're not triple threats is what I'm getting at. Right. And like, imagine if you had had the same, same exact film, but you know, with like Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds in it, like it would have been a very different film. Um, and you, you would have, obviously I'm talking about 1950s versions, like not the old ones. Um, it, it would have been a very different film if you had had the triple threats in it. I think it would have worked. I think you could have pulled off that mix between um, realism and fantasy to a certain extent because, um, and part of that is because the realistic elements in La La Land deal with how we really treat the fantasy in our own lives, like how we treat these fantasies, these dreams we chase after, uh, which made it a very suitable topic to... Um, attack this modern musical dilemma that we face. Um, and I, I don't see any future in which Damien Chazelle doesn't try to make another musical at some point right. in his life. So I hope his next attempt is even better. And uh, maybe if he uses the same actors again, they'll have uh, had a few more classes. Yeah. And Damien Chazelle made a whiplash a couple years ago. So both of his big films, he's a fairly new name uh, right now, but both of his films revolve heavily around music and, uh, you know, the kind of clash of dream chasing and what that really means when you get down to the nitty gritty of it. So it will be very interesting to see uh, what comes in the future. And it'll be also interesting to see just the future of the musical in general. And I know that there are several uh, musicals that we're both kind of like anticipating becoming musicals but also a little scared to see them become musicals because of these things we've been talking about about the modern state of musicals uh so it'll be interesting to see how musicals are adapted for film in the future right i actually want to get some of your hot takes on that jonathan um the wicked musical is it going to be good yes or no uh, I can't say for for certain either yes way. Or no. <laughs> yes or no. Wicked We're not looking for so a measured classic. opinion right now. We do measured opinions every week, all week on this podcast. <laughs> I want quick, decisive, um, irreverent hot takes. Yes or no? Is the Wicked movie going to be good? I hope so. Does that count? Ah, close enough. Okay. <laughs> Will a Hamilton right. movie be made within the next fifteen years? Absolutely. Okay, will it be will good? Will the Hamilton musical be good? That one's for you. Oh gosh. Um uh, Here we go. If if uh Lin Manuel Miranda is involved, will the Hamilton musical be good? Yes. If he's not, will it be good? Uh no. No, but I guess we're just going to have to wait for it. Oh boy. Yep. We're waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, I just yeah. hope they don't throw away their shot. Ah. Oh, man, it was too That's easy. Crazy too easy anyway what do we have next week on the podcast jonathan next week uh we have a guest which we haven't had in a while because we kind of got out of our normal schedule with the uh world tour but we have uh, a friend of ours benjamin angrazano coming on to talk about films made by the cohen brothers so we're going um almost all the way through their career not some of their very recent things but we're going to be talking about blood simple uh, their first feature film in 1984, Fargo, one of their big hits from 1996, and No Country for Old Men in 2007, which is available on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, so we're tackling kind of some of the darker side of the Coen brothers. 
Yeah, um, we were very bright week. and colorful today, and we're getting uh, dark and gritty next week with some crime thrillers. Yeah, yeah, and probably confused. Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's their signature. But anyway, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right, see ya. Hot take stew. I take a hot take. You take a hot take. Hot take stew. You take a hot take. You know what to do. Put it in the stew. The hot take stew. Coming this summer to Broadway. Tickets available nowhere. (laughs) Thank God.